How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. The the reason I was late is because I lost track of time because I was watching a Q&A of Toby Hooper and Karen Black and uh, Hunter Carson at some yeah. kind of monster fest about invaders from Mars. So they what had, else would the three of them be talking about? <laughs> yeah, it's a good, that's a good point. And I don't have a witty retort for you, uh, <laughs> but I don't know. Um, somebody did ask questions about poltergeist though. So they managed to, to, to switch the conversation. I always feel weird for people when that happens because I'm like, Oh, poor Karen Black's over there. Just like, like she has nothing to do with that movie. What the fuck am I doing here now? <laughs> uh, but anyway i always watch these things in two time speed and i don't know uh, how you do that i don't know how you listen to podcasts that way either yeah I, it, it well, drives it's usually me like insane. one and a half times but i've moved up to two on some things it make, it's just so it's too much you get oh. used to it but then yeah, I, I what happens is every conversation after or if you ever move anything to normal speed after it just sounds like the whole world is drunk <laughs> it's just like everybody's like hey man what's going on because <laughs> you're just yeah, like you still like everybody's in like chipmunk speed and uh they don't sound like chipmunks when you go up to two times but it's uh you know, yeah, it doesn't raise the octave it's just they talk really fast like the micro machine guy from when we were kids remember that guy <laughs> i do remember yeah. that guy. what happened to that guy oh he's probably dead <laughs> well uh well hello everybody <laughs> Welcome to Cinema Shock. It's the podcast that explores the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. Uh, this edit's episode is dedicated to the memory of the Micro Machine Man. <laughs> oh, he's still around. <laughs> oh, he's still around. Okay. Yeah, I just looked him up. He's 66 years old. That changes nothing. This episode is still, still dedicated, dedicated to, to the memory of the Micro Machine Man. <laughs> All right. His name is John Mosh- Moshida. Moshida? Is- oh, Moshida? no. No, it's that not. doesn't sound. That's that is unfortunate. <laughs> I would go by the Micro Machine Man too. You know what they say, Mo Shitta, Mo Dookie. <laughs> wow, wow, we are off to quite a start on this week's podcast, guys. I mean, we're we should end it now. There's nowhere to go but down from here. I'm at Mr. Tony Davis on all the socials. Thanks. Guys. <laughs> nice. Uh, well. Gary, are you going to do the intro to the show? I already did that? the intro to the show. You said, well, hello, this is did, welcome to yeah, Cinema just, Shot. Did yeah, you introduce yourself? No, no, I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horn. Hey. All right. Well, I'm co-host Justin this Bishop, is- and we're joined, as always, by Mr. Todd A. Davis. Hello. Also a fan of Micro Machines. Mm-hmm. The way you said it then, it sounded By like that, I mean Todd a. small penises. Todd A. Davis. <laughs> do it in a Mario accent. But Todd A. Davis. Yeah, there you go. See? Yeah. That works. <laughs> Joining like us today, this. Italian plumber. I would also well, like guys, to start this episode real quick by apologizing to everyone we offended on Return of the Living Dead by making fun of Maggie. I don't know if you guys heard feedback on that, but I did. 
And they're like, how are you going to make fun of Maggie? And you ain't even seen Maggie. And I can't even believe you have seen Maggie. It's got Arnold in it. And I just want to, especially to you, Mr. Odinson on Twitter. Is he the only one that said something? Um, no, no. Actually, I heard from another girl, too, who said, like, Maggie's so, really good. <laughs> the way you phrased that, you just called Jack Odinson a girl. No. Said yeah, you did. <laughs> I said another lady. I heard from some, well, oh, Jack another Odinson lady. said yeah. the thing. And yeah, I heard from some other girl. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, apologize. I bet Jackie call. Odinson is no, he's definitely a very, a very yeah, masculine I bet call him gentleman. a bitch. <laughs> oh, all right. The thoughts and views of Gary Horn do not necessarily reflect the thoughts and views of Todd A. Davis. Or Cinema Shop. I'm wearing a tank top today, and I can definitely tell you uh, just from looking at me, looking at myself in the camera, I'm not the kind of person I want to see have to tangle with that guy. <laughs> oh man well you guys ready to talk about a little bit more toby hooper yeah so this is week three week sorry week two of three of our series on toby hooper's covering toby hooper's time with canon films last week we discussed life force i think we all really enjoyed that movie yeah, it's fun. and these movies are wild this is a mm. wild trilogy of films that he's doing this is the one that i was least familiar with the one we're talking about this week I'd seen it, but it had been many, many years. So I'm excited to get into it, guys. I'm excited to get into it, too. Thanks, Gary. That sounded really authentic. <laughs> I really appreciate you're, Yes, you're I gen- am also you're, excited. You're so genuine. I have so. <laughs> nothing but authentic. So while Toby Hooper's Life Force, the movie we talked about last week, it was a failure both critically and commercially, uh, but the folks at Canon Films still stood behind their decision to work with the director, continuing to honor their three-picture deal with him, mostly because, like Gary mentioned last week, they really wanted that Texas Chainsaw sequel that was coming down the pipeline. That was kind of the agreement. Hey, we want you to do three movies with us. Uh, As long as one of them is Texas Chainsaw, you can kind of do whatever the hell you want. It was sort of like that, although it was also sort of like, here's a book called The Space Vampires. This is probably what you want to do. <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, although this one didn't quite work out that way. This one was a little more Toby's choice. But when it came time for his follow-up to Life Force, Cannon was not going to make the same mistake that they did the first time by throwing an insane amount of money at the project. Uh, his next film, when his next film went before cameras, it did so with a budget of about $12 million, which is still pretty impressive for the time, but it was less, less than half of the budget for his previous film. And that film, the one we're talking about today, is yet another tale of alien invasion, although one that's very different from last week's. Mm. Uh, this one is called Invaders from Mars. David Gardner just woke up to a nightmare in his own backyard, but no one will listen. We landed right back there, right behind the hill. No one will believe. I told you, he needs psychiatric help. And soon, no one will be left. Dad, are you okay, Dad? Fine. Because something strange is happening to the people of Willow Creek. Everything's fine now. And David Gardner is about to find out why. David! I'm gonna find my mom and dad! Canon Films presents Toby Hooper's Invaders from Mars. There's no place on Earth to hide. I'm got it bad, got it bad, got it bad. I'm hot for school nurse. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you say different from Life Force, but as I recall, none of the aliens in this film are wearing clothes either. That's so. very true. That's a good so. point. Wow. Well, that Venn diagram's yeah. getting a little bigger. So from the late well, 70s to the 1980s. Else. What? You're talking about what you're Wayne? <laughs> talking about my micro machine, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> So, from the late 70s through the 1980s, Hollywood saw a rash of remakes of 1950s sci-fi flicks. Uh, it's not really a big surprise when you go and look at the trends, like that many of the notable genre directors of the time, uh, you know, they had grown up with that genre. And back in the 1950s, these are movies that they grew up on. So, seeing them want to remake them or get attached to remakes wasn't a big surprise uh, because it was their love for the genre that had inspired a lot of them to be filmmakers to begin with. 1978 gave us Philip Kaufman's remake of Don Siegel's Invasion of the Body Snatchers, a really great remake. Uh, John Carpenter remade Howard Hawks' as The Thing in 1982. Uh, you had David Cronenberg remaking The Fly in 1986. Chuck oh, yeah. Russell remaking The Blob in 1988. Uh, so this was a big trend in the for about a decade, really. And then Toby Hooper, for his follow-up to Life Force, would give us a remake of William Cameron Menzies' 1953 film, Invaders from Mars. Now, have you guys seen the original Invaders from Mars? No. You know, it's pretty good. It's not great. It's not a perfect film, but it's got some fun ideas. It's got some really fun visuals, some kind of surreal visuals that did kind of bleed over into this film, honestly. Uh, it's filled with really great set design and a really good emotional center, thanks to Menzies' decision to show the film from the psychological perspective of a young child. Uh, which was kind of unusual for a sci-fi film of the time. But on the other hand, the film often feels cheap. Uh, it was cheap. <laughs> you know, the makeup effects are pretty bad. Uh, you can see the zippers on the costumes of the Martians. You know, uh, the uh, the supreme intelligence is essentially just a sculpture that doesn't really have any articulation. Uh, they use stock footage of the military that they'll cut into the film a lot to kind of pad out the runtime of the movie still only like 78 minutes, I think. Oh, wow. Well, what's but, the, well, who cares if you can see the zippers? How else? I know the future is supposed to be all fancy, but how else are you supposed to get out of jumpsuits? No, it's not. It's <laughs> like, they're, it's supposed to be their skin. Oh. Like, it's not like they're wearing suits. It's supposed to be the Martian's body and you oh, can see the zippers on it. Gotcha. Hmm. So, I mean, in essence, this is the perfect kind of movie to remake. You know, one that's, it's not a sacred cow, but it has enough good ideas to warrant someone trying to tell the story again and telling it a bit better. I saw this story that Wade Williams, one of the producers on this, he like collects all those old movies or something. And like the, uh, like the original prints and stuff. Yeah. And he, wow. and the rights to them. So he had, he, he had acquired the rights to invaders from Mars and uh, he received like for the remake, they paid him like 50 times the amount he had paid for the rights of the movie. And, wow. Uh, so anyway, a, he was he's very good, loaded off of this. That's a good investment. Yeah. So when he signed on to direct the remake of Invaders from Mars for Canon Films, Hooper, he seemed to be aware of what he was getting himself into by remaking a classic film. Here's what he told Starlog Magazine. I'd considered all the possible remake pitfalls and then developed my own formula for this project that, at least in my mind, diffuses those dangers. The first thing is not to throw away the baby with the bathwater and destroy what was really good in the original, either in spirit or actuality. 
I like how you pause every now and then, which is how, which is kind of what he does. Yeah, I was uh, watching that interview today. I picked up more little uh, quirks that he has, like these weird pauses and just yeah. like meanders off sometimes. And I don't know. He also like will really emphasize a T sometimes. <laughs> you get really getting really into that Toby Hooper yeah, impersonation. <laughs> so, but by doing this, you know, Toby Hooper sought to create a film whose plot and characters were pretty similar to the original but with a wildly different tone, uh, one that was intended to be probably a little more satirical and a little more fantastic and kind of out there than the original one. Because as we've seen, out there is kind of where Toby Hooper seems to thrive. Oh, yeah. He lives there. I mean, some of these, I mean, some of these films from the 50s, these kind of classic sci-fi, you know, staples of that era. I mean, yeah, some of them look really cheap, but at the same time, some of them are really beloved and I would think that would be a pretty daunting task to take on a project like that to, yeah. you know, to keep what, it, to keep in the spirit of it, but, you know, revitalize it for modern audiences. Yeah. 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 I would I mean, say that, though too, what's, what's weird is none of them, when you think about all those movies you mentioned before, like none of them seem to really like feel beholden to the original at all like i mean they keep like a, no, a yeah. sort of a premise like, like the, the initial idea yeah but the fly, like the fly and the thing are like totally out there like totally different this one i think probably keeps to the plot of the original a little bit more than than those other ones so invasion of the body snatchers is pretty close you yeah. know there's only so many variations on that you can you can do but uh, yeah, I mean, for the most part, they take the basic idea and then kind of go in their own direction with it, which is not necessarily not what Hooper's doing here, but he definitely is making this feel still a little bit more like a 50 sci-fi, an updated version of a 50 sci-fi movie. Yeah. Uh, but so he had, he had, he was coming at this from the right direction by knowing like this is what not to do and what to do to make a successful remake. But getting this intent down in script form proved to be pretty difficult so Hooper's life force screenwriters, Dan O'Bannon and Don Jacoby, they were hired to write the script and their original draft relied pretty heavily on flashbacks and featured a young David Gardner who was uh, in this version, he was a new arrival in town, which made convincing the adults that there was an alien invasion happening around them even more difficult than it would have already been. And then this draft was rewritten by Stuart Schaffman. Uh, Stuart Schaffman, another screenwriter, he would actually rewrite the script three times before assistant director David, uh, directors David Womack and David Lipman took a crack at it. And in the end, the film is credited to O'Bannon and Jacoby with a story credit given to Richard Blake. Richard Blake's the writer of the original 1953 film. Uh, although it's hard to really know how much of O'Bannon and Jacoby's original script actually made it to the screen since it had been rewritten at least four times after they got finished with it i was gonna say how do you how do you divide that up geez it's, yeah. it's super uh, i i didn't catch that before that um that 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 it was around may mainly flashbacks because uh i did find o'bannon's script online and i started oh, yeah. to read it but uh it was like it, it said it was his second draft or whatever and uh but i didn't i didn't have a chance to read the whole thing so i don't know like what major changes happened but right off the bat nurse and kid are showing up at the military base and so at the beginning of the script yeah like at the beginning of the script that i saw it i thought i was like am i only getting a part of the script or what but then it goes back to the parents so i was like oh 
So you saying that I'm like, oh yeah, I guess that's what he's yeah. doing. He's doing that like flashbacks, okay. yeah, bouncing around. So with a script in place, it's time to get some actors for this thing. At the top of the bill for this is Karen Black. I love Karen Black. She was a frequent player in 70s new Hollywood films. She's an easy writer. She's in a lot of films by Robert Altman. She did do some horror throughout uh, later on in her career, and, in, including this, but also like Trilogy of Terror is a classic one that she was in, a made-for-TV horror movie. But younger genre fans might probably recognize her most as Mother Firefly from Rob Zombie's House of a Thousand Corpses. Interestingly enough, if you go to the Oracle of Bacon website uh, to try to find like her, you know, people to get your six degrees of Kevin Bacon, she is the highest ranked female uh, really? for <laughs> under six degree connections to Kevin Bacon. She has like wow. 21. Wow. Good, good trivia, Gary. Thank you. Yeah, I found it on IMDb. <laughs> now I'm just going to throw in IMDb trivia every once in a while for like the most like inane facts about something <laughs> that is that does tend to be what makes up most of the imdb trivia right. <laughs> just like why why is this here but there you go so joining karen black was louise fisher uh, fletcher best known for her role as nurse ratchet in one flew over the cuckoo's nest she won an oscar for that uh you had timothy bottoms who was in the last picture show and of course saturday night live alum lorraine newman who even uh, busts a- out that uh conehead's voice at one point she does, and that was actually by the at the request of Toby Hooper, because oh, in nice. the because in the script, uh, it just said that she does like a that the mom does like an alien voice or a silly voice, and Toby Hooper actually requested that she do the Conehead's voice, and she didn't want to do it at first, but he talked her into it, and it's great because I, as soon as I heard it, I was like, that's that's her, Con, that's Connie Conehead. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Tim Bottoms, by the way, uh, George Bush, and that's my Bush. I don't know who else remembers that, but I first that was him. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, I remember that. That was the Trey Parker and Matt Stone TV show that lasted for like a season. Yeah, exactly. It was not not he played George Bush, but he was he was Bush. I can see uh, that. I mean, just look, just picturing him in my head, I can see that. But perhaps his most timeless role is that of Melissa Joan Hart's father in Holiday in Handcuffs. So. Oh my God! <laughs> uh, for so immediately, I recognized know, him. Um, for our <laughs> listeners who don't know, because I don't think we've ever discussed this on the show, but Gary is obsessed with the made. I'd say made for TV, right? It's made, a made for, for TV, TV movie. Yeah. Uh, holiday film, Holiday in Handcuffs, starring Melissa Joan Hart and uh, Mario Lopez. I, I was going to say, Mario isn't Lopez. that Mario Lopez? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's the Gary. Like some of us watch. Uh, you know, Christmas Vacation every year. Some of us watch It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, some of us might watch Die Hard every year. Gary, without fail, will watch Holiday Handcuffs, Holiday and Handcuffs at some point during the Christmas season. It's a Christmas classic. <laughs> it was made for like, I don't know what one of those Hallmark like, Channel. It, it wasn't. I don't, I don't think, think it's Hallmark. Think it was Hallmark. Think maybe Lifetime, Lifetime or something. Maybe Lifetime. Or it seems like a free form or ABC Family. I was about to say oh. it could be like ABC Family or like. It seems Fox like one of, have one of those. But yeah, how old know. is it at this point? Because that's. Probably I mean, I bet years. it's like. Yeah, I, I I bet it's like 08 or 07 or something. Uh, now I feel All like three I of us are sitting out. in front of computers. I know. I was about to say now <laughs> I have to know. <laughs> So 2007, it was 2007, 2007. Ooh, and it was on ABC family, ABC family. I see. And I knew enough to know 07 felt like the right time period. <laughs> it feels like an 07 made for TV movie, <laughs> but in all the best ways. 
Oh. <laughs> I'm not sure what those are. All of them. All of the best ways. Okay. <laughs> Who knew that the Invader for Invaders from Mars episode would go down this rabbit hole? <laughs> <laughs> so also appearing in smaller roles, uh, you had Jimmy Hunt, who had, he plays the police chief here, but he played uh, the kid. He played David Gardner in the original Invaders from Mars. And he didn't really act after the original one, but they asked him to come back to do a little cameo in this one. And then, of course, you've got James Karen, the great James Karen, who we talked about a couple of weeks ago on Return of the Living Dead. He was also in Toby Hooper's Poltergeist. He plays Craig T. Nelson's, uh, his boss in that one. But he's here as the general and is, as he usually is, just amazing, I think. Yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah, he's really great. Jimmy Hunt gets that like little clever line in there where they first go to check out the spaceship thing. And there's like, Oh, this Hill, like I haven't been up here since I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's clever. Neat. If you know, if you know who he is and then landing in the lead role of David Gardner was Karen Black's real life son, Hunter Carson. Uh, Carson had previously gotten a claim for his role in uh, them vendors, Paris, Texas, which came out a year earlier. Uh, but he wasn't like a super, you know, experienced actor. And, Toby Hooper had known him and, and Karen Black for a long time and had not really considered casting him in a role until he had seen Paris, Texas. And Carson's father and uh, Karen Black's ex-husband was writer L.M. Carson. So Carson and Hooper, we talked about this a while back, but Carson and Hooper had nearly collaborated much earlier in Hooper's career. Uh, back in our Eaten Alive episode, we were kind of discussing the time period before Eaten Alive, but after Texas Chainsaw Massacre, when Hooper was trying to get some projects off the ground. And he came close to collaborating on a film called Dead and Alive with L.M. Kit Carson and William Friedkin. And so for more on that movie, uh, we actually go into like what the plot and everything's about in that episode. But go back and check out our Eaten Alive episode. But I will say that this is not the last mention of Carson's name alongside Hooper's in this series. Yeah, they must be kind of close because uh, he, he mentions in, in that q and I was watching that that it all just kind of came together because while they were filming Life, Life Force at Elstree Studios, Karen Black came by to visit and she brought uh, the kid with her. And oh, yeah? it was like, oh, he was just in this movie. You got to check it out. And he was like, uh, so they talked there that that's kind of where it was just like, oh, yeah, well, we'll get it for the next one or whatever uh, that, that's kind of how it all came together but huh. just interesting how these things bounce from project to project but uh william bassett ne- nepotism that's what it is yeah that's true <laughs> just a bunch of nepotism <laughs> you're, not, you're not wrong <laughs> william bassett is also in there randomly as one of the nasa guys who doesn't even get a name i don't think but they're at the end and he's he's in all kinds of shit too but like uh also in house of a thousand corpses he's the he's the sheriff who sends the two guys to the house to help out like his old buddy is the dad of the girl and you know he's trying to find out what happened to her and anyway yeah he's got like all well, long hair and he's like kind of a redneck but anyway well, you also had uh, like Bud Court is in there, who's like a well-known character actor. He's in some Robert Altman's movies. He's Harold and Harold and Maude, you know, like he's he's been around for a long time. But he plays the kind of the nerdy, uh, like the NASA scientist, you know, mm. uh, with the mustache. That's yeah. Bud Court, you know, who, who's really he's pretty fun in this. But he's, you know, a very prolific actor who's been working. I think he's still working now even, uh, but been working probably since the 60s. You know, he was in M.A.S.H., 
that guy Rinaldi, that cop, if he looks familiar to you, he did to me, and I looked him up. He was the uh, he's the Pawnee police chief in Parks and Rec. So, oh, really? oh yeah, <laughs> oh that's fun. <laughs> so filming for Invaders from Mars commenced in Southern California. Uh, the Gardner House it was actually a house that was built for a Cary Grant movie. Uh, Call it, like called like our dream house or something. I don't, I didn't write it down, <laughs> but the house uh, it was built for a, another movie, and it was like Cary Grant the- popping up all over the place too. Look, yeah, look at this yeah. guy dancing on his grave and now fucking around in his house. <laughs> so, uh, but that that house was on. Uh, it was located in Malibu Canyon State Park, although the iconic hillside that you see, which is on the poster for the movie, uh, which was modeled after the hill in the original film, that was on a stage bound set filmed at a place called Hollywood Center Stages, which actually used to be owned by Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, it was Zoetrope Studios, which went bankrupt after One from the Heart. But uh, that's a whole other story that deserves its own full episode, probably, because that that period of Francis Ford Coppola's uh, career is pretty fascinating. But uh, So they filmed it there. And then the massive interiors, uh, the sets in the, for the interiors of the Martian uh, spaceship, they were located on this place called Terminal Island, uh, which was this large artificial island in Los Angeles County. They they needed somewhere big enough to put all of these in one building, basically, and they filmed it inside of, of an airplane hangar, this massive airplane hangar that was used to house the Spruce Goose. The um, one of Howard Howard Hughes's, Hughes's yeah yeah his air his like it was like the world's biggest airplane at the time. It oh. had like a single flight, I think. Yeah, and but but that's how big this this airplane hangar was and that's where they filmed the interior for the martian spaceship wow yeah that's cool martian ship design was courtesy of production designer leslie dilly another uh kind of legend and art director craig stearns both of them were veterans in their field uh stearns craig stearns had gotten his start as an art director on john carpenter's the fog back in the early 1980s and invaders was actually his last credit as an art director before moving into production design full-time, which he still does today. Mostly works in television now. Uh, And then Les Dilly, Les Dilly is an absolute legend in the world of production design who uh, had actually like Stern started his career as an art director. He worked on films you may have heard of uh, like star Wars uh, and empire strikes back Richard Donner, Superman, Raiders of the Lost Ark, an American werewolf in London. He worked alongside Ridley Scott and H.R. Giger on Alien. He worked on Ridley Scott's Legend. Uh, so, like, some, so some fairly fairly familiar movies. Yes. <laughs> some that you may, you, there might be a couple of deep cuts in there, but you know. But yeah, <laughs> So the guy's incredible, basically. He's, he's yeah. great at his job. And Invaders was actually his one of his first credits as a production designer, uh, but he would later be credited as a production designer on genre classics like the abyss uh the exorcist 2 uh casper remember casper <laughs> with, mm-hmm. uh, with christina ricci he did that he also did son of the mask so you know they can't all be winners i think he did that little man movie with with damon wayans where he was like damon Wayans oh, yeah. played a baby remember that one <laughs> so you know <laughs> sometimes a production designer's got to get work where he can they can't hey. all be it can't all be star wars yeah <laughs> that's wild And behind the camera, Hooper was reunited with his Texas Chainsaw Massacre cinematographer, Daniel Pearl. Him and Hooper and Daniel Pearl are like best friends. The two had also worked together on the Billy Idol music video that we mentioned last week, Dancing With Myself. But this was technically only the second movie that they had done together. Yeah, he kind of went off onto like music videos. He did a lot of music videos and commercials, yeah. 
Yeah, he was just like, I mean, it would be obnoxious to try to list like, I mean, everybody from like name four. St- okay, Sticks, Bruce Springsteen, uh, Guns and Roses. Like he did, Don't Cry. Remember that Meatloaf. He did yeah. the he did the cinematographer. I'd do anything for love, but I won't do That's that. That's a good video. Yeah, it's a great he, video. He did uh, a, a, like all. No, that of, was Ford. That was Ford. That's an Ford. Yeah, no, all of Boys that, to no, Mid. No, 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 every Boys to Mid music video. This guy did. Wow. <laughs> well, here's what Pearl had to say about this new collaboration with Toby Hooper. It says, quote, there are several points in the picture where we go for shots very similar to those found in the first film. Hooper and I have an excellent rapport. Our minds frequently click on the same images and we tend to fall in love with them, even though there's often pressure to abandon shots, especially trick shots, because they take up more time. But these are the types of shots that we both take delight in conceiving and executing. So these guys, you know, they're of a like mind. They're both wanting to experiment. They're both wanting to do some cool shit, even when the producers might not want them to because it's unnecessary. That's, that quote sounds like they could be talking about porn. Like trick trick shots? Is that like we, a like shot? frequently click on the same images? We tend to fall in love. There's often are you talking about just abandoned shots, especially trick shots? Like I mean, I don't I don't understand where you're just going saying, with this talk. Saying, continue explaining. It's I mean it's at, look <laughs> look um you know uh, Gary pull up Pornhub. <laughs> <laughs> so type in this title. Search search <laughs> search trick shots. <laughs> I don't want to do that. I don't. I, I'm so curious now. <laughs> I'm so curious what, that, what would come up. <laughs> so we would be remiss if we discussed Invaders from Mars without discussing its creature effects. Uh, well, the, the work of John Dykstra. John Dykstra's back for this one. You know, he worked on Life Force. He was not happy with how it turned out, but he came back. Uh, and, you know, his work here is impressive. But I think the real star here is the creature design by Stan Winston Studios. Oh, yeah. So, oh, that guy. Not long after he'd signed on to do uh, the Creatures and Invaders from Mars, Winston signed on to do another huge production, which is James Cameron's Aliens, uh, one of the most anticipated sequels of all time, one that Stan Winston would eventually go on to win an Oscar for. And with the weight of these two projects kind of hanging over him, he had to considerably expand his crew. He hired uh, a bunch of people. So at this point, you know, when he's working on Invaders from Mars, he's got like 40 guys working under him. Pretty pretty big operation. And Winston's studio was in charge of designing both the Invader drones, those are the big Mr. Potato Head looking guys, mm-hmm. as the kid calls them, and the Supreme Being. He's the one that looks like Krang from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, surely you guys, I'm not the only one that made that connection. No, I definitely was like... As oh, soon as he showed up on screen, I was like, ah, oh, Krang, got some more work. Congrats. <laughs> He's like, I'm always typecast as an alien, though. <laughs> I'll be so, putting out an album later this month. I can do, I can do more things. It's kind um, of a shame they've never put Krang into any of the Ninja Turtle movies. Wasn't he in the second one of the of the new yeah. ones? Yeah. yeah. I don't just, know if I saw that one. Or if I did, I forgot. Yeah, I think we I both think did, have sort of forgotten, but I think we both Bebop liked and it. Bebop Rocksteady. Yeah, yeah, Bebop and Rocksteady. Right. I don't remember Krang, though. Yeah. I'm going to have to go back and rewatch it. Yep. <laughs> Have we'll do we'll do a whole series. We'll do a series on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies, and then <laughs> Todd will be so stoked. Oh, <laughs> um, I was going to point out though that I did in that Q and A. I did not know this either, but apparently Hooper went to Rick Baker first for the effect. Yeah, he went to Rick Baker and Rob Bottin. Yeah, he said then Rob Bottin, and then both of them had recommended Stan Winston. 
Yeah, they were both booked and like they were too busy. They already had other projects coming down the line. So work on Aliens had actually already begun when Stan Winston took on Invaders. Though Winston had committed to Invaders earlier, but Aliens got off the ground first. Uh, but that apparently annoyed James Cameron because he thought that it would take focus away from his project. But on the contrary, when you hear you know Stan Winston and people from his crew talk about it, it sounds like working on the two simultaneously allowed Winston to pull ideas from one to the other. So one of the big ones was, according to Stan Winston, he said, inspired by the Alien Queen concept from Aliens or for Aliens, uh, Winston wanted to figure out how like other ways of putting two performers in a suit, like how, how if you use two performers in one suit, you could kind of disguise the fact that there's a person inside of the creature design, mm-hmm, you know, right. basically doing a man in suit without it looking like a man in suit. Uh, this is a quote from Stan Winston. He says, quote, I wanted to create an alien invader that didn't look like a guy in a suit. So I came up with this idea of putting a little person on the back of a big guy who would stand and walk backwards. So basically this concept, you can find pictures of it online, but it looks like a backpack sort of. And you've got a stuntman, like a big stuntman uh, with this backpack contraption and then a little person on the back. Uh, and one of the little people, by the way, who did that was Tony Cox from the uh, from the Bad Santa movies. Oh, oh nice. okay. And, cool. and like he's in, I think he's on Seinfeld and stuff. But yeah, he was, he was one of the, the performers in the suits. So, I, I, but I've also heard, now that that's a quote that I just read directly from Stan Winston, the Stan Winston school website where they have an entire article about the making of this movie and behind the scenes on their work on this movie. You can find some really cool pictures on there. So I would, I would recommend checking that out, but so that that's what they say as far as where this design came from. But I also heard that this idea actually originated with William Stout, William Stout. You guys remember he was a big uh, part of return of the living dead. He was the conceptual artist on that. He designed the tar man. You know, he was basically Dan O'Bannon's right-hand man on this uh, on that movie and he was a conceptual artist on this movie and according to William Stout he had spoken to Rick Baker uh who like we like Gary mentioned had been originally approached to work on this film and they were kind of talking this over just as colleagues and friends you know and Baker told him that the problem with a guy in a suit is that it always looks like a guy in a suit which he he's right nine times yeah. out of ten it does so Stout says that he came up with the idea of having them walk backwards and then took that idea to Stan Winston. Now, what now maybe it was Stan Winston's idea to put the other person, the other performer on the back. That's very well possible. But the idea of walking backwards uh, in the suit seems to have originated with William Stout. Because and what the final product ended up looking like was you had the little person on the on the back facing forward or what was the front of the alien creature and they would be able to manipulate the face basically like a big puppet using their arms and legs and then a large stunt person would walk backwards which created a non-human leg joint like a backwards leg joint like a like a chicken you know yeah. where the joint's backwards so that's kind of where that comes from which is really pretty damn clever yeah. it's clever i mean i even saw where like hunter carson was asking toby hooper like how 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 do these things exist and so toby hooper's like oh i'll show you and like took him over to the suit and they unzipped like part of it or whatever and opened it up and he was like there's a bodybuilder inside with a little person strapped to his back and like he's standing on like some kind of plank that operates the mouth and uh 
It's just like uh, it sounds like a Mad Max thing or something. And it's and it's wild because I I did find myself anytime they were on screen like really focusing on the movement because I couldn't at first was like wait a minute how are they how are they doing that and looking at the setup around the actual foot of well, I guess the bodybuilder guy but and then looking at where his arms would be which I guess are the back legs. He's yeah, got, well, he's got like a like he's using like ski pole kind of things. Yeah, yeah. yeah for the back, yeah, it's wild. I like it's it. It's pretty crazy. It's a pretty crazy design. Uh, but then the design of the drones themselves created an issue. Like these things are huge. They're so big that building them out of foam latex, like you normally would, was impossible because lo- foam latex has to be cooked in an oven, and there simply weren't any ovens big enough to accommodate the size of these things. So instead, they had to come up with a way to inject foam into large fiberglass molds. So one of the, the crew members, a, a, creature effects mem- uh, a creature effects artist named Rick's, Rick Lazzarini, he came up with this concept that he called the octo-injector. Here comes the trick shot. <laughs> There's a little layup for you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the octo-injector, though, was a big, it was basically, the way they described it is a big five-gallon bucket that had multiple hoses coming out of it. I guess eight of them, since it's called the Octo. Uh, and then they'd have six crew members sitting around with one-gallon buckets. They'd mix up the phone and then dump it into this thing and cap the lid and then shoot compressed air into it, which allowed them to inject foam into multiple points or inject foam into multiple points all around this mold. Uh, it's really kind of like super innovative and super crazy to think about. Like, I'd love to see footage of that happening. Like a one-man bukkake. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's six man. Well, yeah, I guess them. there are six of them. So, like a normal bukkake. Yeah, you can you can ser- you can search for that on Pornhub. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can search for anything on Pornhub if you want. Whether you'll find it or not, or whether you'll be put on a list, another matter. <laughs> so, for the supreme being, that's the Krang-looking guy. Winston's crew built a puppet with an animatronic face and bladders built inside of the puppet to simulate breathing. Cause this thing, it's pretty big. Like he's got this big serpent like tail, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that you don't see a lot of, but the actual puppet is pretty big. And so they built that then, and his crew worked every weekend for weeks to finish up their work on invaders from Mars before having to leave for the alien shoot. Now, not the whole crew left. Obviously they've still got people from Stan Winston's studio on set operating this every day, but Stan Winston himself left to go work on aliens because James Cameron asked him to come into aliens. He checked with Toby Hooper to make sure it was okay. And Toby Hooper felt that they were in good hands with the rest of his crew. So a guy named Alec Gillis ended up kind of supervising a lot of the shoot. I was going to bring him up because he's, he kind of got in on Stan Winston's studios, but this guy had been on lots of creature effects. Like, I mean, he was, like I think his first movie was Jaws 3D, but he'd done he had been on Cocoon, which we talked about a little bit, like competing with Life Force yeah. prior. But they did Invaders from Mars. But he he also helped out on Aliens and Monster Squad and Tremors, Tremors, like he did tremors, all this crap. Yeah. I mean, he was working on stuff as as nice. recently as uh, Godzilla versus Kong. Like he was, yeah, uh, I mean, like an effect supervisor there. And, uh, if you look at his filmography, it's sort of insane. Like like some I, a bunch of iconic creatures and and it's a lot of stuff with animatronics that you probably remember growing up. Like he very likely had a hand in, you yeah. know. Uh, like uh, what is it? Oh, Mars Attacks. That's the one I was trying to think of. Mars Attacks. Like incredible 
war. A, a pretty incredible filmography. Nice. Um, he, uh, I found a quote from him talking about this movie, and uh, he he talks about the size of the drones and and that kind of thing, and uh, just how big they were. And he said, uh, you know, he he mentions like some of the stuff you're talking about about the latex, the foam latex being bigger than anybody had, and Rick Lazzarini uh, coming up with the octo injector. The, the quote he was talking about, he's like, so six of us would sit around with one gallon buckets, mix up the polyfoam, dump it into this thing, cap the lid, shoot compressed air into it, which allowed us to eject polyfoam into the multiple points around the mold. We got our skins out, and they were good enough to be patched together, and it was a very big and bold thing to do, though. Stan was never one to take the safest route. He would always say, there's got to be a way, and then we'd brainstorm. Every idea was heard. Every idea discussed. It was invigorating. Not so invigorating was the noxious gas emanating from the polyfoam drone creatures. We were in a small room. He was like, we were running giant pieces with little ventilation. And on our lunch breaks, we'd lie right on top of these big bodies we were making because they were soft and cushy and they were <laughs> secreting cyanide gas. So we'd be laying around <laughs> going, man, I don't feel so good. But it was for me. <laughs> and they were poisoning like, themselves. He's like, we, we knew that it was toxic stuff, but... We'd just like stare at it, be like, hey, look, gas is coming out of this polyfoam. And it's like, we thought we were taking some precautions, but we were also young and stupid. <laughs> and uh, that, that was one of, one of the issues that they had. That was prior to filming. During the filming, uh, one of the issues they had, kind of a problem they had to solve was the problem of the Martian blood. Uh, so going into the movie, it was kind of understood that this was intended to be a family-friendly movie. Uh, so just bright red blood spurting out of the Martians when they get shot wasn't going to cut it. So instead, they decided that the Martian blood would be a combination of yellow and lavender-colored fluids. Uh, they weren't able to use corn syrup as a base, which is what you would normally use for fake blood, because the art department was worried about it staining the sets because they would have big puddles of it, you know. And this is in the Martian spaceship, which was this immaculately you know, detailed set. But then someone on Stan Winston's team found a solution and it was slime. So there was, a, you guys might remember this because you're, you're my age and I remember this stuff. I probably had some of it, but there was this popular toy by Mattel back in the eighties called slime. It was sold in what looked like plastic trash cans, like green plastic trash cans oh, with the mod yeah. and the motto on it said it's goopy, drippy, oozy, cold, and clammy, which happens to also be the motto for Gary's mom's vagina. Wow. <laughs> Good one. You got that in there. Okay. All right. Thought we were laying off mamas, but, uh, no, that was only during Mother's Day. <laughs> We're laying on mamas. That's on Pornhub. <laughs> stepmoms. Oh, that's right. Stepmoms. <laughs> it's all stepmoms. So, it's gross otherwise, right? Like, so, yeah. Yeah. Can't be, so they, the, can't be listen, real we're not sister. Weirdos. Listen, we're not weirdos. We only use our micro machines on stepmoms. <laughs> so the production ended up buying gallons and gallons of the substance that was used as slime's base. So without the green coloring that was used on the final product, because the final one, it came out, you know, it's green, it's slime. It looks like the stuff from Nickelodeon. Without that, the slime was translucent white, and the effects team soon began to affectionately refer to it as bulges. <laughs> I don't see what's so funny about that. Also on Pornhub. <laughs> 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 the stuff ended up being perfect because it took to color well uh and they could 
you know, make the two separate colors, the yellow and the lavender, and they could swirl them around on set without them mixing together. And they could pour it into thick puddles that could easily be kind of controlled where they knew exactly where the puddle was going to lie. And it basically peeled off the floor with little to no cleanup needed. So it kind of worked out perfectly for them. Nice. There was one incident on set, one major incident, somewhat major, where it's it's towards the end of the movie where the Marines are assaulting the throne room where the Supreme Intelligence lives, you know? Mm-hmm. So one of the effects performers, a guy named Gino Cragnale, he was the one who was controlling the Supreme Intelligence. And the way that they had to do it because of the shape of that thing is basically they had him in a like Superman flying pose on a board and they strapped him and duct taped him onto this board and he would control the puppet from the inside. So they'd have guys like lifting the, for the the parts where the thing has to lift up, they'd have guys in the back lifting the board, making them fly about. But it was basically a big puppet with an animatronic face. Mm -hmm. So they're filming this scene where he's getting shot and he has to kind of react to it. They yell action, explosions start going off, little squibs start blowing up, blood spurts of colored glycerine. And then all of a sudden there's actual fire. And (laughs) at some point, a spark from one of the squibs had hit the flammable paint on set and pretty soon burning debris was raining down from the walls of the set. So luckily another one of the members of the creature effects crew, a guy named Dave Nelson, he was thinking quick on his feet and he pulled out a pocket knife and cut Gino Cognale out of the suit because he had no idea what was going on. He's a performing, nobody ever yelled cut. He's performing. And all of a sudden from his point of view, a knife, cuts the suit open and people are pulling him out. He had no idea. And he looks up and the walls on fire. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, so after, yeah. What people, so after what, that what people sequence, do for art. <laughs> hey, you know, it's, it's That's, dangerous I mean, sometimes. Hooper talks about that. He's like, we could have burned down most of LA with that thing. Like he was yeah. like, it just, uh, it, it, He's like with all those tunnels, the way they were going and everything. And he was like, and luckily, yeah, they God. they called it and it turned into nothing. But he also talks yeah. about those guys walking in the uh and the drones being, you know, that they the way they were able to see was they had little monitors inside. Yeah, and- you can find photos of that. Like when they put them in the suit, there's like a video monitor kind of right under their face where you, where they could watch what was going on because they're and walking he was, backwards. He was saying in that interview that like they were 40 feet up in the air. So like he was like yeah. if they he was like they could have technically walked incorrectly and just because there's no the bars door. on the scaffold there's no you know on the edges of that set because yeah. it's elevated you know where the supreme being is well that that set was Hooper had wanted it to be even more elaborate than it was I mean it's pretty damn elaborate the way it ended up in the movie but his original concept for it was that like everything would be very like organic which it looks organic. But his original version was it was going to be like three stories tall and it was and the walls would like pulse like it was an organic being. Oh, wow. And they just didn't have the, the budget for that. So they weren't they weren't able to do that. They kind of had to abandon that concept and turn it into what we got, which still looks really cool. And it still kind of looks organic, but not like it was before. Like it, before it looked like you were basically in the belly of a whale, like you're Jonah in the belly of a whale, you know, like you would see. Uh, what looked like bones on the ceiling and things like that. It was really wild and honestly like feels, I don't know if Hooper was inspired by Alien, but I definitely feel like H.R. Giger, I mean, that's a very organic design. Hearing the description made me think of Alien, the stuff from Alien. Yeah, I I saw one writer refer to the design as uh, H.R. Giger meets R.L. Stein. 
which <laughs> I thought was pretty pretty great. <laughs> so that that makes me think um, about another thing. Um, the did you see anything about? Because I could I couldn't delve into this anymore, but apparently, uh, go, uh, I forget the canon guys' names. Uh, Golan, Golan, and Globus, Globus, yeah, Golan and Globus, yep. That they were kind of, and this is probably more for like as we get to the release, I guess. But they they were kind of expecting Toby to stick to horror, and Toby wanted to make a family friendly movie, and so they that was kind of a dispute that they had during this huh. time. So um, they they didn't because so I kind of always assumed that they maybe wanted it, it to be kid friendly to reach a wider audience. Yeah, I, I read know? that in an article, and I was gonna like I, I don't know that was just deeper, my assumption. But yeah, it it just that they they had like kind of a dispute about that. Like they felt sure. like Toby had kind of betrayed them once they saw the final product. Huh. Interesting. Mm. Well, after the sequence where they they uh, the Marines you know assault the supreme intelligence the shooting in that throne room scene was done and they moved on to the next set which was the tunnels you know the the underground tunnels and they needed an extra hand for some reason when they were doing this so a special makeup effects artist on film a guy uh, who was Everett Burrell he called in a friend of his to help out and give them an extra hand and this kid shows up Alec Gillis comes up to him and goes hey you're that uh you're that young rich kid from Pittsburgh, aren't you? And it was Greg Nicotero. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. So, and Greg Nicotero worked for the rest of the shoot on oh. this movie. Yeah, that's, oh, cool. that's cool. Yeah. Um, just it's so weird how how much crossover there is in all these things. Yeah. Um, it's a small world, you know. The the world of film is pretty pretty small when you really start to see all the connections. I will say this, just so we get one of these in here and we don't lose the whole film without without a reference to Star Trek. Uh, Bud Court in the basement of the elementary school is using this like a uh, scanning device. And it is apparently straight off the set of Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. Uh, <laughs> Savik uh, is using it uh, when they go investigate the regular one station where, oh, wow. uh, with Captain Kirk and Dr. McCoy when they're that's uh, fun. Yeah, but it's like the exact same device. They just took it. They and just borrowed put it. it. Yeah. They just borrowed <laughs> well, well. Speaking of, of 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 fun little references like that, though, uh, what's his name? The, the guy who played the the kid in the original one. Uh, uh, shit, what was his name? Uh, Jimmy Hunt, who played David Gardner in the original movie. So when he came to set, he had a prop from the original film, and it was the Supreme Intelligence. Which looks like Martian Manhunter, kind of like he's got like the big, not Martian Manhunter, um, Bra- Brainiac. Brainiac is he the one with the big head? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Kind of looks like that, but with little like tentacles coming out. But it's in like this kind of clear globe. Huh. Uh, that's what the original Supreme Intelligence looked like, and he owned it. Like he had, I don't know how he got a hold of it, but he owned it and he brought it to set. So when the police, when him and the other police are like searching, and they search like in a, I think it's in a barn or something, they're shining their flashlights around. They shine their flashlight directly on the original Supreme Intelligence from oh, uh, cool. the first movie. Yeah, nice. it's kind of that's pretty kind of awesome. a fun little Easter egg in there. Yeah. So um, uh, aside from a, a you know slight fire on set. Uh, the shoot for Invaders of Mars went relatively smooth. It came in on time and on budget. And also like Life Force, when it was released in the summer of 1986, it fared pretty poorly at the box office. Nobody went to see it. 
<laughs> so yeah. ironically though, while Life Force seems to have suffered at least in part from audiences who were more invested in like we talked about last week and kind of the more cuddly, friendly aliens like E.T., invaders from Mars got slaughtered by a group of bigger, fatter extraterrestrials, namely James Cameron's aliens, including the creatures designed and built by Stan Winston. Mm. Well, let's face it. The xenomorphs would fuck up all of these people. So Yeah, yeah. They, they, yeah, they, they, would. they would destroy the uh, the Martian drones. But it, it probably didn't help that Invaders from Mars had a pretty lackluster ad campaign and pretty spotty distribution. Uh, audiences just did not go see the movie, despite the fact that it received pretty good reviews from critics and publications like the New York Times, the New York Post, the LA Times. They all gave it good reviews, but people just weren't going to see it. I mean, and uh, if you look at the original poster, like much like Life Force, it's pretty underwhelming. It's an image of that hill you know, with the little fence and some lights coming up behind it, but no spaceship, no Martians. Like it's a pretty boring poster. Granted, at least the title of this one told you exactly what you were getting. That's true. (laughs) Yeah. Hooper uh, talks a lot about uh, in some stuff about the uh, uh, marketing part of Canon, you know, that he, he said that, He's like, a lot of people don't appreciate there's a real art to distribution and marketing and that sort of thing. And he's like, in Canon, he's like, he he said he wasn't sure, but he thinks Canon at the time was doing all of that themselves and they just failed at it. Yeah. They were not very good at it. Invaders was even nominated for a couple of Razzies, you know, the Golden Raspberry Award, which I think we all hate. I know I hate it. Were they doing Razzies back then? Oh, yeah, they've been doing Razzies. Yeah, I just said they were nominated for a couple well, of Razzies. Well, I mean, yeah, but I didn't know if that was, like, after the fact. I was like, how old are the Razzies? No, no the Ra- they weren't around back then. That's what's even more fucked up. <laughs> they, 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 they went back. They went back and decided, you know what? Fuck that movie from 1986. <laughs> I'm with you, though, Todd. Like, I didn't know until we started doing this show that the Razzies had been around as long as they had. Uh, the Ra- the I, I Razzies like have been around recent. since 1981. I just thought it was like, I had initially thought it was like a more recent thing that people were being dicks. No, people have been dicks (laughs) since, since the dawn of humanity, Uh (laughs) but it got a couple of Razzies. One was for worst supporting actress for Louise Fletcher, which I think is insane because I think she's awesome in this. She's kind of doing a variation on nurse, nurse ratchet, but she's fun. I think she's great in this. She's really, she plays the role really well. She's a really good sport. Cause she's again, an Oscar winner who allows herself to get eaten by a giant, uh, alien thing, you know, she and eats a whole frog, frog, a frog, she eats a frog out which she didn't want to do at first. Uh, they didn't, she didn't want to do that. And Toby Hooper talked her into it. It was this frog made of like a gelatin. And she said it tasted like horrible, but she didn't, she had to be talked into doing that scene because she's like, I'm a fucking Oscar winner. I'm, yeah, I was in one of the over the cuckoo's nest. Uh, but it also was nominated for a Razzie for worst special effects, which is even more insane to me because you can say a lot of things about this movie. I don't see how you talk shit about the special effects because they're great. The creature effects are pretty awesome. I can't believe that. That seems ridiculous. Isn't this that crazy? Is, I mean, if anything, the one thing you can count on is that Toby Hooper movies look pretty cool. Like they, he ends yeah. up getting some good people involved and uh, the, the effects are, are usually pretty fun. Yeah. So I guess this brings us to the point of the show where we have to look and see, you know, the Razzie awards might not have liked it, but other reviewers and newspapers at the time did really enjoy the movie. 
But I also have to wonder what modern internet reviewers had to think of this movie. And I think Gary might have the answer to that. Oh, I'm sure I do. Because as always, uh, you can count on the internet for people to just blow things way out of proportion. And you really learned that when it comes to humanity, somebody needs a nap. Not from humanity, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) You get some decent ones, like I mean, just straightforward. Like this one says, "Pointless remake offers elaborate monsters, but they still look awful." And film is too stupid and unpleasant to work with a really crass ending that renders the whole film moot. Forget this junk. You know that was pretty straightforward. Divine here on. I don't think it's the same Divine, by the way. Uh, on IMDb says, well, it was pretty bad. The aliens are fake. I mean, really fake. I swear that you can see a guy in the monster costume on one of the aliens. Also, it had a bad story. I usually like it when there's about 10 minutes of suspense before the aliens arrive in alien movies. And here, it's basically instant. Also, the parents have stammered speech when they get overtaken by the aliens. Also, the acting is mediocre in the action scenes. The kid shows no expression whatsoever when there are explosions and similar things going on right next to him. I think it would have had potential were there some better acting and a little better graphics. I would not recommend this movie to anyone but someone who wishes to be really disappointed. Well, I don't know what they mean by graphics. This isn't a fucking video game. (laughs) That's what I was just Uh, thinking too. But also, would they have been more satisfied if... Toby Hooper had cast real aliens because they seem to have a big gripe with the aliens being fake. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, This one says, this is terribly awful. I didn't like the original and this was about 20 times worse. It contains senseless cursing from an all American family and a terrible child actor saying it's like they took the corniness of the first and thought, Hey, this needs to be even more cornier. The special effects were better, but not good, even for the 80s. I did appreciate how they gave the big brain thing more of a part because I felt the first one, he wasn't around enough. Yeah, there's no reason you should ever watch this. That person needs to work on their grammar, I'll be honest. <laughs> but but just quickly, uh, I did find that some of the best one stars, we were talking about this early on, come from Letterboxd, and all these are from Letterboxd. Here's Ultimate Whip saying, instead of watching this film, you should do a load of watching and perhaps think about why you don't call your parents as often as you should. <laughs> uh, Ash Tricky says, Invasion of the Body Snatchers meets Dennis the Menace, but less good than that. <laughs> That's good. Uh, a. Moosen says, it was poo. Practical effects are really nice, though. Pointless, unbelievably pointless. As the main character, they say, David, so often in this film, said, they chased me all over town, and that's the entire film. Them ineffectively running away from people for like an hour of the runtime. It's bizarre. Astonishingly boring. 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 Child actor can't act. Nobody even really tries to act. And what's the fucking deal with the U.S. military showing up and taking over the film like it's got oil in it? Poo. <laughs> Poo. Uh, uh, Michael Pope says, Golden and Globe is sure love throwing money at Toby Hooper to make shit films. <laughs> Adrian, Adrian Gergroff says, Motherfuck this movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, Talk about uh, this. It's stepmoms. Step motherfucker. <laughs> and last but not least, I have Coyote Fugly. Who says, 
The trouble with making an homage to shitty 50 sci-fi is that you can be too good at your job and end up making shitty 80 sci-fi. They're not wrong. Uh, But I've noticed that a a recurring theme in a lot of these reviews is that they don't like Hunter Carson. Yeah. What did you guys think of Hunter Carson as a child actor? I was happy to see all these people hate him because I thought he sucked. He does suck. Yeah. <laughs> he, yeah. he was like he was like this movie's uh uh what's his face uh, from the last one. You know, the uh I just forgot the friggin' guy's name. You, it sounds like you forgot the movie we watched last time too. Life, Life Force is Life the name Force. of the movie. Hold on. <laughs> Steve Railsback. Railsback. God, why could I think of Railsback? Yeah, he was like that in this. And what it made me think. Well, I could rant about this in just a second if you want, Todd, if you want to say something. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, the kid's pretty bad. Um, yeah, I can't see anybody really having legitimate complaints about uh, the practical effects. It, I have some stories about some of the, I mean, again, in a movie that's called Invaders from Mars, I have some I have some story questions. And there were a couple of real awkward moments between the kid and the nurse. Like, if you don't know that that's actually the mom and son, like, there's there's some there's some real this how there real, is some real stepmom kind of yeah how this <laughs> hasn't been made into a porn parody i don't know because it's well the child is eight years old so well that I, I think in the parody you wouldn't hire an eight-year-old <laughs> <laughs> but i mean i i gotta say i did get a kick out of when he comes out of his bedroom and then runs across to the parents' room, like, ah! I was, oh, dude, I'm so glad you said that. That was going to be one of the things I pointed out. It's like every time that kid runs, he's doing that Kevin McAllister home alone run where his arms are like swinging and he's like, ah! <laughs> Like so like Kermit the Frog when he gets excited. Yes. Oh, <laughs> right. God. I'm like, what oh. is wrong with this fucking kid? Like, yeah, the kid's pretty bad. And I have a pretty low tolerance for child actors. Uh, they just get on my nerves most of the time. Like, because they always seem to be acting. Like, they, they like you'll see a kid doing, it feels like they're doing a school play. Like, in swing really over. Fences, like, I, I watched Psycho Gorman last night, which is fucking great, by the way. And the, the girl who's the lead is pretty entertaining, but she's never believable as like, you You never believe that it's not a kid acting. If that mm. makes sense. Yeah. Like she's she's sense, acting yeah. with a capital A for the whole movie. Now she's pretty funny. She has helped, good lines. Helps. She has great dialogue and she's, she's, she's good. I mean, she's not good as an actress in it necessarily, but she's very entertaining in it and she does her job well. Anyway, that was my mini review of Psycho Gorman. You should see it. It's very good. <laughs> I'm the heckin' best. Yeah, that song was stuck yeah, in my head all yeah. night. <laughs> it's been stuck in my head for I don't know how many weeks ago I saw that movie, but it's still there. Yeah, it's a, it's a great movie. Gary, you said you had a little rant to go on about something. Well, I, I mean, I, I say rant. It's not so much a rant. It's just an observation now that I think I've just come to terms with on Toby Hooper. And it's just that I think that he's not an actor's director, right? Like he's I've thought that same thing. Yeah, he's just, he's he's unique. He has vision. Like, he, he definitely has all of that. He has, he has the willingness to go weird, and he's unafraid of that. And he wants, and I think that that's what makes his movies memorable later. 
yeah. but at the time, maybe not as popular, but later on there, there it, it makes them stand out amongst the hundreds and hundreds of movies that come out is that Toby Hooper's movies are unique in the way that they feel and look and, and that sort of thing. But he's not good with actors. Like he's no. just, he's, he's, well, I don't know. It, it, I can't I think I of mean, a single one of these movies that he's been, you know, that you would say like, Oh, this, you know, he really brought this out of them. Like they're the acting yeah. was astounding. I mean, I, I don't disagree with that. I think that, I, I think that when you, especially it, that, that same idea came to mind for me when I was watching Steve rails back in life force. Cause and an actor's director would have a either gotten a better performance out of him or b cast a better actor. Right. I do think that Toby Hooper's gotten incredibly lucky on some films to have good actors cast, like Neville Brand in Eaten Alive, you know, or even Robert England in Eaten Alive. That was the or, other point I was going to make is that yeah, it's like the things that have stood out for him is sometimes he has managed to get the right people that. Right. Or Kevin Conway in the in Funhouse or, you know, even Marilyn Burns, you know, he, he casts good actors, but it feels like that's more like luck sometimes. It's, it's the exception, not the standard. Well, I mean, it, it's not like every actor in this movie is bad. I mean, I think that the kid is bad, but I think everyone else is fine. I think James Karen is fucking great. I think Karen Black is good in it, although she is it's a very subdued performer performance for Karen Black like if you're at all familiar with what she normally does and the mom and dad like Lorraine Newman and and what's his name uh Timothy Timothy Bottoms uh I think they're fine in it I think Timothy Bottoms is actually pretty fun in the early parts of the movie but then later on they're supposed to be kind of drones anyway so you know when they're in their regular mom and dad mode they're pretty pretty good but when they're drones they're kind of not supposed to be acting normal anyway so it, it works you know what's crazy is like watching this and it is it's it's the same thing with like uh like poltergeist like there's memorable people in poltergeist that somehow managed to like stand out and all of that i swear to god besides texas chainsaw massacre and listen i've had fun with uh eating alive I thought that was a blast. I thought, uh, I mean, Poltergeist is obviously famous for a reason. Um, but nothing about any of these other, I want to say this and I don't, I don't mean to be mean, but like the most well-directed thing he's done to me, besides like a Texas Chainsaw, which is like his, all of his heart and soul, like in his passion, like directed into one thing was probably Salem's Lot. Like, I feel like Salem's Lot is just like a really well done film and it's a made for TV movie. And then I'm like, maybe Toby Hooper is just like, he's really good at like TV style production. I don't know if that sounds crazy, but it seems like even movies like The Fun House could have been technically that way. And like it, it, I don't, does that make sense? I think Toby Hooper's biggest strength as a director is creating an atmosphere in a film through lighting through sound and through set design i think he i think he is really good at all of those things uh now when i say sound i'm mostly referring to the sound design like the quote-unquote score of texas chainsaw 
and eaten alive that weren't really traditional scores, which he wanted for this. Um, the, Christopher Young was the guy who did the music for this movie. Christopher Young did like Hellraiser. Like he's done most of his filmography or horror movies. And Toby Hooper wanted him to do something closer to Texas Chainsaw, like something really weird and experimental for this movie. And he did. And he, he recorded the full thing. And then Golden Globus said, no way. Like, no, we wanted a traditional score. So he had to scrap it and do a whole new one. But Christopher Young said that the score that he had created for this was like his favorite thing he had ever done. And he had to throw it out because they didn't want it. Uh, But I mean, you can't, I I think, I think Toby Hooper is a good director. I think he has his faults, but I think that he can definitely create an atmosphere in a film better than a lot of other directors do. I think that he, um, yeah, I, I said I didn't want to be mean, like like TV directing is a bad thing or anything. And I don't know. I mean, I guess nowadays, I, I guess I'm thinking like he'd be killing it now as like a oh, director yeah. of a series or something like that. Like sure. he would he would, you know, where where it's just I don't know. I guess the framework would be a little bit different that he's working with then. But um, I mean, I think I think he's obviously visionary and and that sort of thing. But he. There, there's a reason he's not Spielberg too, you know, yeah. like it's, it's there that, that depth, I can see it as we go through all of these things. There's like things that he clearly cares less about than others. And so he well, wants the atmosphere. He wants the effects, but he doesn't care about anything going on within the scene with the actors. It doesn't seem like. Yeah. I mean, it's funny you mentioned Spielberg again, because when I watched this movie, it really feels to me like a direct response to Spielberg's films at the time, including Poltergeist, which is, which, you know, one of the reasons that people say that Poltergeist was directed by Spielberg is because it feels very much like a Spielberg movie. It's that suburban setting, you know, and Hooper, we should note that he's never had a bad word to say about his experience on Poltergeist. Uh, Never had a bad thing to say about Steven Spielberg, really. Uh, now he's he's had he's had to clarify some things in newspapers and stuff, but it seems that him and Spielberg, I mean they they continue to work after Poltergeist, but the effect of that controversy on his career had to be pretty obvious to him, and I think that he was responding to that a bit in this movie because there's like this random dolly zoom. It's when it's in the school where yeah. Karen Black's talking to the kid, and that's a shot straight out of Jaws. Yeah, I know. I, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, and. It, he never does anything else like that in the whole movie. So it had to be like a direct kind of, he was quoting Spielberg in that scene, uh, maybe just for fun. But, you know, you've got the spaceship landing in this that we see that feels a lot like Close, Close Encounters. encounters. Yep. Uh, there's even a deleted scene where the kid is eating like a candy. And I think you can see it on his nightstand, but it's like a, it's called W's and W's, I think, which is like M&M's upside down. But that, <laughs> Also was probably a lighthearted jab at the Reese's Pieces thing in E.T., you know, Uh, and maybe that's all a coincidence, but I kind of think it was Hooper poking a little bit of fun at Steven Spielberg, you know, maybe good heartedly. I think it probably was. There's a dissection like E.T. There is. I mean, well, the the classroom scenes feel very much like they're out of E.T. That's what I was going to say. The classroom scenes feel very E.T. Yeah, there's a couple of things that feel very, very E.T. Well, and that's the thing. I think it feels like this whole movie is almost designed to subvert expectations of this type of movie, specifically because of E.T. Because 
in this story, it's it, if you start telling the if you start like explaining the plot to this, you've got a kid in a suburban town. He he finds an alien in his backyard. You know, it, it starts to sound a lot like ET. But instead of finding like a cuddly friend, like an ET, he finds these fucking terrifying creatures that are all mouth and giant sharp teeth. You know, <laughs> it's it's really like taking that idea and turning it on its head. And I think that's pretty interesting. Like as a viewer, that's really interesting to me and knowing that he was probably responding to Spielberg's movies and movies like E.T. Because this movie has a lot of lighting also that feels very Spielbergian. Um, I guess at the end of the day, too, as I work this out in my own brain, just on this episode, like it's it's probably that I think Toby Hooper is the kind of director that what hurts him is the Hollywood machine probably really the most because it's just yeah. like, you're going to let, you have to let Toby Hooper be Toby Hooper and yeah. just let him do his thing because that's really the only way it's going to work. <laughs> it's uh he has to be able to just let his freak flag f- fly. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, he's going to make something memorable now, yeah. whether or not it's going to make you millions and millions of dollars. And I get as the, the, the studio that's important to you, but yes. <laughs> uh, it's just like, also, hey, it's Toby Hooper. So Toby Hooper's going to have weird ideas and they're going to be interesting. No matter what, they'll be interesting. I kind of wish they had just, in looking at this, you know, and of course we're, you know, about 20, 20 30 years removed from, from this movie. 35. 35 years removed from this movie. I kind of wish he'd leaned a little harder into it being almost more of a parody. I I, I think that maybe that would have, maybe that would yeah. have worked a little bit better in terms i mean because there's things that are just kind of downright confusing like okay the, not the, the aliens the aliens come in they get control of nasa but for some reason they're focused on this one sixth grader like yeah you know had they addressed that and sort of dismissed it like a joke and played the whole thing for comedy maybe some of that stuff would have come off better you yeah. know what's funny maybe? about that is like when i was watching i thought at first that he was going for because this was a remake of a 50s sci-fi movie that we were going to have the I don't know it's weird I was giving him the credit I didn't give and like the happening for like M. Night where he now would tell you that the acting is like planned uh, you know because it's supposed to be like weird 50 sci-fi movie acting or something I thought that's what he was doing at first because especially because of that kid and uh but then yeah as the movie goes along it doesn't really play into that at all it kind of is like no nah, they're they're taking it seriously yeah, yeah. and i think all of these things because the, the film's tone is really weird uh you, you you're it's kind of unclear what he's going for and i think that probably contributed a lot to the film's failure to connect with audiences because for one hooper seems to have been trying to make a family-friendly movie while forgetting to make anything friendly about it at all. Because <laughs> yeah. the monsters in this are pretty fucking scary if you're like a little kid. You know, they're they're pretty scary designs. Uh, but the plot is probably too childish for most adults. So it, li- it, it, it exists in this kind of no-man's land where it ends up appealing to almost no specific audience. <laughs> my, my wife, my wife, because uh, she watched this with me, she was like, I wonder if this would have, if you would feel different about this movie, if you had watched it 
10, 15, 20 years ago. You know, if you had caught it when you were a kid. Yeah, like, but I've, I've talked to some people or not talked to some people. I've read some reviews of people who did watch it as a kid, and a lot of them were not even fans of it then. Uh, you know, but I, here's the thing. It's not like a terrible movie. I think it's a, I think it's actually a really fun movie uh, that has a lot of flaws, but as a showcase for awesome set design and creature effects, it makes it, you're, you're never not entertained by what's going on in the movie. Um, I, I, and I also think that because I think because Hooper's career began with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which has this really gritty, almost documentary-like feel to it, that people tend to forget that his sensibilities tend to lean towards the cartoony and the weird, uh, which is evidenced by literally every movie he's made since Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like very over-the-top stuff. Now, there have all there have always been rumors that during this time in Hooper's career, all the way going back to Poltergeist, that he had quite the cocaine habit. Uh, I saw one writer refer to the movies that he made with Canon films as his, as Toby Hooper's cocaine trilogy, which honestly feels right. (laughs) It feels (laughs) fitting considering how crazy these three movies are, but I think the movie's having fun. I mean, I I think it has some deliberately phony looking sets like the hill, the hillside going, you know, over where the alien lands. I think he made that look fake for a reason because he wanted to evoke the look of that 50s movie, these over-the-top alien designs. I think he's really, I think it does play into his sensibilities. I think maybe the the movie's tone is confused because he is also like in the back of his mind trying to make a kid's movie, but doesn't really know how to make a kid's movie. Right. You know? Yeah, like he, (laughs) I just picture him on set like, all right, cut, you know, uh, hey, kid, I I see what you're doing there, but um. When you come out of the bedroom and you're running to your parents' room, uh, do it like this. <laughs> <laughs> really get That's those arms. Nobody's going to say I'm not an actor's director. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, you know, I've mentioned it like on every Toby Hooper movie we've talked about so far, but set design is obviously a big thing for Toby Hooper. And you could definitely say the same thing here. Like the, the set design oh, yeah. for that Martian ship is incredible. Yeah. I think, I think it's super cool looking. And I also realized watching this and thinking forward to next week, like Toby Hooper seems fascinated with these types of locations, movies that they, he'll, he'll set his movies primarily in a single location from which there seems to be no escape. Ooh. It's like, you've got the Sawyer house in Texas chainsaw or the Freeling house in poltergeist, uh, the hotel and eating alive, the fun house and the fun house. And then you've got the alien tunnels here, which feel very similar to the underground layer of the Sawyer family that we'll see next week in Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. Like that's just kind of his thing. Uh, Cause even, I don't know if you've ever seen Texas Chainsaw too, and I don't want to get too much into it for our view or listeners who are going to watch it along with us. But a big part of that film is set in an, an inescapable location. And it just seems to be like, his thing, like it's like the bad place, like these these places where you're. If you end up there, you're in trouble. It's so weird to think. I mean, it's easy to make fun of these reviews and 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 pick on them about. I can't believe this is the guy who did Texas Chainsaw, and you're like, you don't want a guy to be stuck in. You know, like one thing. Um, yeah, he can't just keep doing Texas Chainsaw his whole career. It's just, it is interesting just the amount of just 
everything that like Texas Chainsaw was, it feels like it's tough when you make a movie like that and it's just like this inescapable terror and it's like palpable, like just energy and like fright and oddness and just everything about the movie is funky. And it's just, I don't know. It's like, you're always, it, it sucks because you're always going to be compared to that. And uh, he, it, it is like, he never quite, he did it to get to Hollywood, you know, like yeah, he, yeah, yeah. he did all of that. I don't but know. He it's does, hard to his say sensibilities don't really work for Hollywood. That's the whole thing. Like he, yeah. he initially did it with the intention of going to Hollywood and he made it to Hollywood and Hollywood shunned him essentially. And, but his, his sensibilities don't work for Hollywood. I don't think, I think he's simply too weird. I think his visions are too weird for most, what most Hollywood studios. Like he can't, he can't do the studio budget. Like he's, he he needs to be the filmmaker that just is like scraping together money and has to make something happen, but he's got creative input, like creative control. I mean, on everything, you know, he gets to do everything he planned on doing. I can't help but wonder what his career might have been if he ha- if he had taken a path sort of similar to someone like Romero who leaned into the zombie thing. I feel like and yeah, but even that took him a while to embrace because he yeah. he yeah he resisted doing Dawn of the Dead for a while. But yes, I mean that undoubtedly right, shaped like, his career. I feel like Toby Hooper, you know could have been the George Romero of maybe the sci-fi movie or, you know, the, the, of, of the alien movie, you know, as yeah. you know, George Romero to zombies. If there's one issue that I take with this movie more than anything else, I think, I think it's the film's pacing. I think the film's pacing is a bit off, especially in the first half. There's not a lot going on in that first half. Uh, I mean, you see the alien uh, ship, pretty early on but you don't see the actual creatures for quite a while and i feel like and that's fine because that's the whole jaws thing you know if you want to wait till the end and build build it to to that reveal then that's one thing but there's not a lot of building of tension uh there's not a lot of urgency for a story that's about a small town being taken over by aliens or is there i should feel like by the end like i'm like oh we got to stop these aliens or we're all or they're going to take over the whole planet and you never get that feeling from the movie and i think that's honestly its biggest flaw yeah i I, you know and we we briefly mentioned it in the original script that uh would it would have started with him at the at the military base i actually feel like that i would have preferred that for him to start at the military base and And then then you wonder what 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 caused us to get to this point? Right. When he sits, yeah. you know, through the opening credits, like we pan over and see he's sitting next to some woman who's clearly not with the military. We don't know who she is. And like, by the time the movie starts, he starts recounting everything so that by the time the nurse comes in, you're like, Oh, Hey, that's the lady in the Jeep with him at the very beginning. And you know, all that stuff starts to come together. I would have preferred them do that. than for the very ending, it, you know, and it was all a dream. Like I fucking hate the ending. Oh, but so but then you're like, was it a dream? I don't know. <laughs> because yeah. then he, he sees the aliens again. And he apparently, so he runs in and like the, the movie ends with him opening his parents' bedroom door and like screaming. But you yeah. don't really see what he's looking at. And the yeah. original plan was for him to see one of the alien drones eating his parents. 
But by time they shot that, the special effects crew had moved on and they couldn't shoot the scene. So they had to just end on the shot of him screaming. But that would have at least made a little bit more sense. Yeah. No, it wasn't all a dream. It never was all a dream. Your dad was just telling you that because he didn't remember it because he was taken over. But that would have been a good shock ending. Maybe a little too shocking for a a kid's movie, though. (laughs) You know, Um, I, I think the movie's at its best when it does embrace like the corniness of the 50s sci-fi movies yeah like one of my favorite things like james karen knows exactly what kind of movie he's in he's a guy who says marines have no qualms about killing martians like only james karen could deliver that line and make it sound great but that's a goofy line that you would hear in a 50s sci-fi movie um or the end where he's like great scott does anybody have a penny (laughs) and Like, that's so dumb. Like, how can you take a movie seriously where that's a line in the movie and the idea of putting a penny in the slot of this organic gun thing would make it fire? That's so dumb. It's so dumb. But, like, the movie kind of, I think it's kind of knowing that it's dumb. And I think that if it had done, if it had been a little more self-aware like that more often, it would have actually made a better movie. Yeah, I, I think that goes back to what I was saying earlier. Just lean into the joke a little bit more. The reason that they have that Marines have no qualms about killing Martians line in the movie, by the way, is because they had originally approached the Air Force to do this movie and the Mm -hmm. Air Force wanted nothing to do with it. And their statement when they said why they didn't want to do it, they're like, the Air Force's official uh, view is that extraterrestrials do not exist. So they wouldn't do the movie because it was about aliens. So they, but then (laughs) one of the guys on set, like I think it was someone in the effects crew was a former Marine and he gave them a number of someone to call and they got a military advisor that was a Marine. So that's why they said Marines have no qualms against about killing Martians. That's kind of a jab at the air force for not doing the movie. And the thing with the penny is they were originally just asking for like, does anybody have a penny? And your uh, mil- Marines are not allowed to carry loose change like into combat. And I think the guy actually said, one of the Marines actually says that, sir, we're not allowed to, t- we can't take loose change into combat. That's actually a true thing that the military advisor told them. And like, well, they, the Marine would not have a penny in his pocket, which was how the script was originally written because they can't take those into combat. So they wrote the thing about the, the dad, like collecting coins for his kid and putting it in his jacket pocket. So that's kind of where that came from. <laughs> yeah. And, and when it happens, you're just kind of like, God, I wonder if that's going to come back later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so further viewing guys, if we're doing a double feature invaders from Mars and another movie, what are you going to pair this movie with? Well, I mean, I think obviously you would have, I mean, you could say any of the movies we already mentioned as far as, uh, you know, the fly and like other movies based off fifties, but I guess that's not really like this movie. Um, Doesn't mean it would make a good double feature. Yeah, but it could, it could work. I mean, I don't think, I mean, invaders from the body invaders of the body snatchers is this movie is very similar to that. Although we said that about life force last week, but yeah, even the remake of invaders of the body snatchers, it's a very different feeling movie because it's not like a kid's movie at all. It's very kind of dark, but Similar concept, you know? Yeah. And if you're going for the style of movie, like what it's about, I mean, obviously like uh, there, there's all those like invasions of the body, invasion of the body snatchers. That's probably the best one, I guess. But, you know, there's like Mimic and uh, there's other movies that do this. Night of the Creeps kind of similar. Yeah. That'd probably be kind of fun to pair up with this one if I had to guess. But yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe stuff like that. 
What do you think, Todd? Well, um, I think, you know, again, I've been, you know, championing this thing to be more of a comedy. Uh, so I think uh, leaning in with like something like Mars Attacks would be yeah. fun. I think Mars Attacks would work um, well. Yeah, I think uh, even, you could even go for the for the Saturday Night Live double feature. Just go ahead and yeah. do it. <laughs> that would be fun. Um, <laughs> actually, I would do it. If we were doing double, you know, I, this is something where I would watch the original and then watch the current one. If I were to do yep. that again, I'm I'm one of those guys that actually liked. I really enjoyed the original and just I like the the newer version of it is uh, the day the Earth stood still. Really, yep. really enjoy the original. And I love the I'm original. One of those, yeah, I'm one of those few guys who didn't mind the remake. I thought it was okay, yep. and so that would be my other my other double feature i would be so, remiss if i did not say killer clowns from outer space like yeah. i feel like for some reason i thought of killer clowns tone wise yeah i could see that yeah. one, one that came to mind for me is one that i i remember liking as a kid and i haven't seen it since then because I, I specifically remember the vhs cover but i don't know if you guys even remember this movie it's from a few probably a couple years after this i'd say probably 89 or 90 called spaced invaders Yes. Remember Space Invaders where yeah, like these, these four aliens come and they're like really short. So people think they're just kids in Halloween costumes. Yeah. Uh, I don't know <laughs> if it's any good. I remember liking it when I was a kid, but again, I was a kid and who knew what my taste was like. Uh, the other one that came to mind for me that I, and this would probably be, I'm going to say this just because this will never come up again. I'm sorry, Justin, to cut you off. My grandfather died on the night that I watched Space Invaders. Wow. <laughs> What a memory. <laughs> I've always <laughs> just remembered that movie for that. I'm sorry <laughs> for bringing up those traumatic memories, Gary. I just, you know, <laughs> I love I loved my granddad, but I'm just saying, I just remember I so, watched it that night, and that night I was woken up by my grandfather to tell me that my grandfather had died. And uh, so Spaced Invaders, one and a half stars. <laughs> I'm saying well, that. I'll look up whoever made that movie, but they killed my grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, my number one pick, I think, for a double feature that I think would work really well with this is Critters. Oh, yeah, yeah, I don't I think know why Critters, I think of that. That makes sense. I think Critters would, would be a great double feature with this. I think Critters is a better movie than this. I think Critters is legit really good, the first one. Uh, but I just think that would be fun. They have a similar tone. The creatures both all have big sharp teeth <laughs> but you know it's just it's a fun alien invasion movie yeah so you know we talked about this movie coming out getting a sh you know, razzie awards and things like that reviews were pretty good but audience didn't really go see it so when all was said and done invaders from mars only made five million dollars at the box office during its theatrical run that was less than half of the movie's budget oh gosh yeah Ugh. yeah with Invaders from Mars, Toby Hooper had made two very expensive failures for Canon films. But his time with, with Canon, that story is not over yet. Uh, next week, we will discuss the third and final film that Toby Hooper made with Golan and Globus, a much-anticipated sequel to his breakout film, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2. Now, the question is, is it going to fare any better than Life Force or Invaders from Mars? Well... Tune in next week. I'm hopeful. Yeah, are you? I'm I'm hopeful it's better than the first one. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking A. God damn it.
I feel like I feel like the first one killed my grandfather. Wow. <laughs> Have you, you know you've never seen T you never seen Chainsaw 2? No. Oh, do you know what's funny is like as he was saying that, I was thinking, I really do feel like there are people that could make an argument for liking Chainsaw 2 over the original. We'll talk about it next week, Gary. Save that content <laughs> for our next episode. All right. If you guys want to watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 along with us, head to cinemashock.net. We've got links there that will tell you everywhere that you can stream it. Uh, you can also find all of our episodes on there. You can find a link to all of our series uh, that we're doing, all kind of linked together. Merch, you know, find out where you can subscribe and listen and all that stuff. Everything's there on cinemashock.net. You can also find links to our personal Instagrams and Twitters and all that stuff, as well as the shows, which is at cinemashock, uh, cinema underscore shock on Twitter and Instagram. We're also on Facebook and all that stuff. Where can you guys be found on the internet? I am at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all the socials. And if you like Star Trek, I have a Star Trek podcast called the Computer Resume Podcast. I am at this is Gary Horn on all of the things. And I am at Justin underscore Bishop. Sorry, did I interrupt you, Gary? No, I don't know. I don't care. Hey, don't you want to talk about your wrestling show? I was just going to say I have a wrestling podcast at TIPW (laughs) show. And I am at Justin underscore Bishop. Until next week. May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other. Johnny has the keys, but does anyone have a penny? (laughs) That was a good one. really want to watch Texas Chainsaw 2 also by the way you can get the uh blu-ray collector's edition from Scream Factory uh for, $200 yeah for $189.95 <laughs> so if you if you'd like and to purchase that add to cart